So, if you were here last week, we started with this section, but then I preached the next four or five verses. But this section in the book of Colossians is called a household code. And it basically says, okay, we spent three chapters talking about the gospel, what it means to be a new humanity created in Jesus' image, to be renewed by the gospel, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be changed, to look at things in a totally different way. Um, And then it says that in Christ there's neither um, Jew nor Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, different groups, but all are one in Christ, for Christ is all and is in all who, in the context, trust and believe in him. And it also says in another place, why do you submit to all the world's structures when they're not in line with the gospel? Which could lead you to believe that if you believe in the gospel and we're a new humanity together, recreated in Christ um, through the power of the Holy Spirit because of the gospel, you might think, well then, gosh, that means that there's no structure anymore. We can do what we want, whatever. As long as it's Jesus-y, then we're good. And then this passage starts, and Paul clearly says that's not the case. Um, there's actually orders and structures that we're going to renew and transform even though we may not abolish them. And so you get to this section and um, it says this. Now bef- before, before we look at that, let's hold on and look at it. Um, imagine for a second, so this is Google Images, you type in college student, this is what you get. Imagine you're talking to a college student, they're about to, they're 18, they're going to go, go off to college, doesn't matter if you've been to college or not, and you know their parents don't give them very much advice, and they ask you for advice, but here's, here's the contingency, ready? You've got 12 words. They're going to college, you're going to give them some advice, besides don't screw it up, and you've got 12 words, what do you write? What do you tell them? Right? Now, I did this exercise like 12 years ago, and I wrote a 124-page book. Right? I mean, it's hard to like, but that's the nature of a New Testament epistle. And that's why we can read some of these sections and be like, oh, why didn't he say it like this? And why didn't he say more? And why didn't it's because it's a tiny piece of parchment he wrote while he was in jail. Okay? It's a little terse. And you're going to read it, and you're going to be like, ah. But we're meant to read it sympathetically and expand on it and discuss it and try to figure out what it means to believe in it and trust it. So I'm going to read this very brief section and then try to talk about what its meaning and significance is for us. Okay, so starting in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter or provoke your children, or they will become discouraged. Now, the rest deals with the household called referring to bond servants, people who are essentially um, debt-based slavery of people who would be in a household. And I, I preached for an hour on that last week, so I'd encourage you to go back. And there's a whole hour sermon on slavery and the whole Bible and how this passage functions and all that kind of thing. And it'll be a, it will be a use of 60 minutes of your life. But this morning, um, what I want to do is I want to talk about four things related to this passage and this subject. And there are these. One is, I think we need to acknowledge what confuses this issue for us. And that that's what makes this so complicated, actually, and not these four verses. Two, what does this text actually say? Three, what are the bigger issues related to believing it, trusting it, and living it out as God's word? And four, what are some practical tactics that you and I can engage in so that it produces harmony and not enormous explosive fights within marriages or within your future marriage or hypothetical marriage? So first, I think we need to acknowledge what confuses this issue for us. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, but there, there's all kinds of stuff in the air that makes this very difficult for us. I don't think we as Americans have any idea how confused and muddled we are in our thinking about gender, family, man, woman, period. And so, for example, um, although there's an enormous amount of good that has been done in the feminist movement and in empowering women, one of the things that sometimes comes across through the shrillest voices in late feminism is this kind of this idea that the genders are essentially adversarial. They exist to exploit each other. 
and that they are fighting with each other to get control of each other rather than living in harmony with one another and created to be complementary and cooperative to each other. And the minute you've got that in the air, you've got it, you can't even, you can't even deal with an idea that God created genders distinctly different to be complementary, to have somewhat different roles, and to flourish in relationship to each other. Right? The, the second thing related to that is that there's no clear picture of the differences between the genders, and there isn't one coming soon. So, for, for example, one of the most terrifying things you could tell a person is, you're going to be on national television in four minutes. You're going to be asked the question, what's the difference really between men and women besides their plumbing? And you're going to have 20 minutes to answer. Now, for most people, if that was at all real, their blood would run cold, not just because they'd have to do public speaking, but because the topic's impossible. In fact, there might be three, four, five Christians in the whole country that could get on TV and the rest of us would watch and not be going like this the whole time. Oh, God, oh, I can't believe you said that. But we wouldn't do any better because none of us have any clue or would certainly not say out loud what we think is the real difference between men and women besides our just biology. Some of us have some ideas of what we might think, but we know better than to say them. Or we really don't know. And when you look at the social science literature, there's, there's very little interest in finding this out. Much of it is extremely polemical rather than scientific. Social scientists have to work much harder to get like real clear conclusions because most findings in social science data can be interpreted nine different ways. We don't have an answer and one isn't coming soon. Because we don't, not only do we not know it, we don't want to know the answer to that question. The third is um, each gender judges the other gender's sins more harshly. And so that tends to lead to an unnecessarily adversarial relationship between men and women. We are different. It leads us to sin different. We tend to be more judgmental of the other gender's sins. And that's why we all really think the other gender is more sinful than us. That doesn't help creating a cooperative, complementary relationship between the two genders, right? But then there are more general things in the air that don't have to do with our discussion of gender, but affect it dramatically. For example, our general rejection of the idea that we should suffer and be exploited. Okay, let me give you a general definition of exploitation. When you have to do something that isn't for you, okay? When you have to do something that isn't for you, that's the most general definition of exploitation. Now, let me just say something really plainly. That's also called human adulthood. Do you see the problem? The problem is, is that we have this general sense that doing something that isn't for us is exploitation. And yet, that's what adulthood is. That's what being a husband is. That's what being a father is. That's what being a mother is. And that's what being a wife is. That's what being a productive human is. It is you spend the majority of your waking hours and your blood, sweat, and tears to do things to provide for, nurture, and protect people that aren't you. And when we get this idea that, like, I shouldn't have to suffer, like, I shouldn't have to put up with this, I shouldn't have to deal with this, I shouldn't be exploited, we're basically saying, I don't ever want to be a productive adult. And then we wonder why we chafe under husbandry and wifery, fatherhood and motherhood. Well, it has nothing to do with gender. It's everything to do with what we think we are and what we think we shouldn't have to put up with as men and women. There, part of it is, too, is the connotation of the word submission. The minute you read that, men are like, I'm not going to be that. Because you get this picture of like this dog that's like, no, don't hurt me. Just give me some peanut butter. And women, the minute you say the word submission, it's kind of like they hear submission and they think exploitation or subjugation, which I could understand if they didn't find that particularly attractive. There's the, the degradation of positive views of authority in general. We just don't like any kind of authority, period. And that's partly because Authority is supposed to be used to serve others. When you enter a position of authority, it is supposed, supposed to be exploitive of you. 
Don't morally, you should never accept a position of authority that you don't accept is designed to be exploitative of you. You are entering the position of authority to be used by others for their own benefit. That's what public service is. That's what being a pastor is. That's what being a husband is. That's what being a parent is. That's what being anything in any kind of authority is. The position of authority assumes your exploitation as the leader. The reason why we hate authority is because we as leaders don't think that. We actually use it to what? Exploit those we lead for our own benefit, which is why people hate authority. And there's a lot of good reason, because we don't morally look at authority the way it's supposed to be looked at. Jesus said, if you lead in my church, you serve everybody and you die like me. And that's how Christians act. Because the king died for all. That's the way the church is supposed to work. There's real authority. And that authority exists so that you can be exploited for the good of others. That's what authority is. And we don't like that. And we won't accept it. So then what are you going to—so when you say a husband has authority in the home and is the head of the wife, what do we hear? The husband has the ability and the right to exploit his wife. That's what we hear. Not because we don't—we're confused about gender roles. We are. But in addition to that, we're confused about what authority is, and we don't have the character to bear it. And of course, there's others, right? General unhappiness by both genders of how things are evolving, and the result is the household about which this is written, that it should flourish, is not doing well. In our culture at large— in general, or our subcultures that most of us are a part of in particular. So the second question then, okay, well then, if we're supposed, if all that's in the air, and then we come to this passage, what do we do? Right? Well, the first question is, before we talk about how we all feel, the first question is, what does it say and what does it mean? That should always be our first question. And here's the answer to that, and I'll just make this brief. We could do this for about two hours, where I could deconstruct and reconstruct and deconstruct and reconstruct this text about 15 times. And where we would end at the end, if we were honest with what the text really means, is exactly where we started when we read it in English the first time. It just says that. It just says exactly how it reads in English in the NIV 84, or 82, right? It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter, or a more literal translation is provoke your children, or they're going to become discouraged. That's exactly what it means. Now, one of the ways to clarify how—one of the ways we should think about this is to think about it in relationship to the other household codes of the Greco-Roman world that this is written in context to. Now, in the other Greco-Roman household codes, um, wives are not addressed because the household codes are written to men to tell them how they should and must rule their own households. Under Greco-Roman law, there was what's called the paterfamilias, which means the father of the household had the right to do what he needed to to keep his family in proper order, including no limit on violence if he felt it was necessary. And so he could tell his wife that when a child was born, she was to abandon it and expose it to death because they didn't need another child. It was his right to kill his wife or his children. That didn't happen very often. But, it, but he had the right under law to do so. And when these were written, it was understood that if a father has that kind of authority and you write a household code, you just talk to the dad. Everything's under his authority. He has the power to do everything. If something isn't happening, it's because dad isn't doing a good job. Now, once you realize that, Paul's take is kind of different. Because he doesn't say, husbands, subject your wives to your authority. He doesn't address the husband in relationship to spousal submission, does he? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the wife. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, there's some dispute about exactly what fitting in the Lord means. It's said that it can have two meanings. It can either mean it's fitting in the Lord, meaning if you believe and trust in and follow Jesus, if you're a Christian, then it's fitting for you to submit yourself to your husband. The other possible meaning commentators say is that fitting in the Lord means that you should submit to your husbands to the extent to which what they expect you to submit to is fitting in the Lord, is something that Jesus would command, right? 
Now, the problem is we all like the second interpretation and the first one's right. Right? Now, the second one isn't what the text means, but it's still true. Okay? One of the ways to understand that is all through the Bible, you need to realize there are many relationships of authority and submission that exist that are commanded everywhere. In fact, all of us are under multiple relationships of submission and authority, right? The Bible says in Romans 13 and in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we should submit ourselves to the governmental authorities, right? Justin Martyr said in the first and second century when Christians were being slaughtered for not worshiping Caesar, he says, you treat us like we're bad citizens. The only law we don't obey is worship Caesar. It's the only law we don't obey. Christians in the Roman world, we're the best citizens with every other law. We're commanded by our God who says, Caesar, you aren't a God to obey you. And we do out of religious devotion to the Savior. Christians should be looked at by a culture that doesn't agree with us as people who are politically out of step, but yet model citizens. And that should confuse the heck out of them. There's also other relationships, right? Obviously, there's parent and child. One of the things, the ways the book of Romans talks about people who, who um, will not be saved, will, like, will not come to Jesus, is it says, they refuse to, and the word uses, submit to the gospel. That is, the first and most fundamental relationship of submission is submitting to God, that God is God, that he has provided salvation in Jesus, and that Jesus has accomplished that salvation through the cross, what we call the gospel, and that we submit ourselves to that. It's the first relationship of submission. And there's a bunch of these. One of them, for example, in 1 Peter 5, it says, young men, be submissive or submit to the older men. And there's other places where it says, Timothy, treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Young, what he's saying is, is he's, he's echoing a command in the book of Leviticus. There's this, there's this passage in the book of Leviticus that says something like, when a gray head enters the room, you stand up. Period. When a gray head enters the room, you stand up. Why? Is it like added calorie burning? No, it's, it's to show respect. You stand up to show respect. Right? It used to be when a woman would enter the room, everybody would stand up. I don't know why we don't still do that. It's not like we're all like too tired from being so physically fit. You know? Now let me ask you this. Is that law in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, where God says, when a gray head enters the room, you stand up, is that one of the laws that Jesus fulfilled and so we no longer have to do it? Is that one of the ones that was built into the sacrificial system and Jesus so fulfilled respect to older people perfectly on our behalf that we would never have to do that again? Very unlikely. Right? That is a commanded relationship of submission. When somebody is older than you, especially considerably at all, they get respect as, def as a default until you have excessive evidence they don't deserve it. Remember, in the Bible, the relationship of submission is the, the benefit of the doubt always goes to the one in authority to a very significant extent. You only disobey when you absolutely have to. Government, parents, the giving of respect. In fact, it says in Romans 13, speaking about government, but also generally, to anybody who the culture tells you you should give them respect, you should give them respect. Giving respect is one of the most loving actions you can— Like, if we have a potluck, a congregational meeting, first thing you ought to do if you're a younger person and, and an older person comes to you, please, please get in front of me. Can I pull out an extra chair for you? Can I do this? Can I get up? Can I, can I pull out this? When you sit down at the table and there's people your age and there's somebody who's 60, out of respect, you speak to the 60-year-old first. Now, this was pretty standard in the South when I was down there. You sit down, you turn to the 60-year-old first and say, how are you, ma'am? If you don't know the name, you ask them the name. You talk with them for three or four or five minutes before you turn to the people your age. Because it's respect. Why? Because most of what you have enjoyed, they suffered for. They built and they created. And you shouldn't walk around angry about how they didn't do it right. It's like kids complaining about their parents. Yeah, your parent's a sinner. I know. Quit being an idiot. 
once you recognize some of that stuff, I have no idea why I said most of it. Um, just kidding. When you see this command, wives submit to your husbands, you can see it's a command to the wife in which Paul has commanded the wife to take it upon herself to submit to her husband, and then in the next work verse, he contradicts the Greco-Roman right of the husband to actually enforce it. So you have a command to the wife that she should submit to her husband, and then you have a command to the husband that implicitly and explicitly basically says you have no right to make her submit to you. You can't, you can't make her. You have no mechanisms of punishment that if she doesn't, you can get her to. Therefore, the command to a wife to submit to her husband is a moral and spiritual command that has no power backing in our ability to enforce it. Therefore, husbands, you better make her like it. If you love her and you're not harsh with her and you lead the way you're supposed to, and she takes upon herself the command from the scriptures and from Jesus that this is how he's created the, the gender to be complementary and cooperative with each other, then she can quite very well do it herself. And if she doesn't, I mean, there's this, there's this, I remember there's this old thing where I think it was Tony Campolo, he was talking about, I think he was talking about homosexuality, and somebody in the audience found out that his wife, um, held a, a more liberal view on homosexuality than him. And they stood up and they said, you know, Mr. Campbell, I mean, I mean, don't you believe that wives should submit to her husbands? And doesn't your wife have this view about homosexuality? And, you know, why don't you straighten her out? And he goes, what do you want me to do? Hit her? Right? I mean, that's idiotic. Right? I mean, in the passage, it's very clear what is enjoyed on women, to women, for women. Husbands are given, here are the weapons husbands have. Be loving, and don't be harsh. So, what that means is, is that the relationship of submission and authority and the relationship of love and response is designed to function by each person being morally and spiritually mature themselves and enforcing upon themselves what they are called to do. Now, that doesn't take away the force of the command at all, right? Wives are commanded in the verse to submit to their husbands. Husbands are commanded in the verse to love and not be harsh with their wives. But it creates a dynamic in which if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. The negative tools don't exist. Either we're going to be Christians or we're not. Now, when it comes to— Okay, I'm just going to—let me just move on to the next thing there. If those verses are relatively clear, and I would argue they are, even though, of course, much ink has been spilled just saying that they're not clear, I think when we got to the other side of that complexity, we'd still find it still says what it says. The question then is, why is this so hard for us? Why, why is this so scary? Right? And why, why, are, why are even men terrified to participate in it at all? I think there's a number of reasons for it. Um, <clears throat> one is that there is a kind of, and I hate to say feminist, it's kind of, it's, I, call, I say late feminism because here's the problem with all reform movements. When they succeed, people who feel like they've succeeded, the people who are moderates in the movement, tend to drop out. But the people who their very identity is to see oppression everywhere and the need to liberate it, they stay in the movement. And so reform movements tend to sour after, if and after they succeed. And so there's a lot of women who would say generally they're feminists, but they're like, yeah, we kind of won that one. It's, and just piles and piles of, peop- of women sort of dropped out of the movement because it was over in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s, and so on. And so now what we tend to get loudest on news channels and stuff like that are people who are a little bit kind of not all that helpful sometimes. But what you will get with that kind of attitude that's fairly popular is this issue of, you, you don't believe that, do you? To, to the woman, you, I mean, you, you don't actually like, do what your husband says, right? I mean, that's crazy. Or to the husband, you don't, I mean, you don't, you're not part of that kind of like oppressive 
keep the woman down. Let's see if we can not let her get any shoes thing. Are you? I mean, like, that's, that's crazy, right? I mean, that's, that's going to be the thing. Um, Kathy Kelly, Tim Keller's wife, wrote a book recent, recently about gender roles in the church rather than mainly in marriage. And this is what she wrote about her experience at one point in the book. She says, The question is not academic for me. I wrestle deeply and personally with these issues as a woman who was once preparing to be ordained in the United Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA. The PCUSA ordains both men and women. The church that she and Tim Keller joined, the PCA, doesn't. It ordains only men. And that's what she's been ministering in for 30 to 40 years. So she said, In some places, I've been looked upon with suspicion as a raving feminist because I encourage women to teach and lead and do so myself. In New York, I've been called self-hating and worse because I continue to believe that God gave us a good gift when he created complementary gender roles for men and women. That's about how we should be treated. Some people should think we're raving feminists. And they're like, well, why don't you believe the Bible? When what they believe is a traditionalized, ultra sort of hierarchical so on sort of thing. And yet— other people should look at us as, as like just so out of step with everything and how can you believe that and isn't that crazy? There's a couple recently who has been going to the church for about three years and they got jobs out of town and they're moving to another place and they said, I wanted you guys to know how much High Point has meant to us. And she wrote this two-page letter on how much High Point had meant to her. Very little having to do with me, but mostly the church as a whole. But there's this, this one paragraph I want to I read to you. <clears throat> We've also been really grateful for the teaching at High Point. Your teaching is challenging, blah, 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 about, yeah, whatever. Okay, here's the point. This has been especially important to me, this is me, the wife, in relation to the area of gender. I have a certificate from the UW in gender and women's studies, and being a feminist Christian, have, I've always had a bit of a, a double consciousness. I feel that in various ways, churches often give the impression that God loves everybody, but would like you just a little bit more if you were a man. One pastor— we had took every baby dedication as an opportunity to ask parents with boys what they had done right. <laughs> Woo. This attitude usually shows up in subtle forms of discriminations and biases, which effectively diminish women's contributions to and resources within the church. The attitude at High Point is different. I know your experience with gender classes, because I've said in other sermons that like, my, my history mentor in undergrad was a women's studies professor. A, a, a professor named Judith Wellman. I know your experience with gender classes may s- seem like a small thing in relationship to your current ministry, but it's a huge in relationship to how women are talked about and listened to in teaching in classes at High Point. She talks about her PhD and how she never thought she'd be asked to teach in a church, even though she's a woman with a PhD. And we asked her to teach a class on art here and theology, and she did, and it mattered to her. Yet we're a church that has only male elders. I don't have time to preach a whole, whole sermon on that. That's about how people should look at us. We're crazy feminists. We're insane woman oppressors. That's how, how people's ignorant bigotry towards us should be. What should actually be happening is in complementary loving relationships, both genders should be flourishing. For the good of each other and for their children. Where, how are we doing? One of the other issues is what I'll just call for now the new Christian manhood. Now, there's kind of this sort of, especially among younger women, younger women, younger men in the church, this sort of younger man Christian manhood, which is kind of like the making studs for Jesus movement. And it's kind of like, you know, the church has been feminized, we've been feminized, and a lot of pastors, because they realized they had to go after these like 26-year-old guys living in their mom's basement in pajamas, living completely unproductive lives that don't go out and find jobs and marry women and have children and be exploited. And so there have been these pastors who kind of gone after that and created this kind of like manly man, evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christian image. And you've got these guys who are kind of like, like, they're like, yeah, I love the UFC and like, you know, we hunt and shoot guns and look at my AR-15 and like, you know, I, I, I killed this thing with a spear and you know, like this sort of like hunky, like let's ride motorcycles. My son's a Marine because I raised him that way and like all that sort of thing. And on one level, it's a, it's a good thing in that it like, it, it's pushing back on this sort of like guy who won't stand up and be a grown-up man. He thinks chasing women is masculinity and that has to die. 
on let the love, it's good. But then again, you've got guys who are like, they basically type all day. I mean, that's their job, right? They're like software engineers or like, they just, they don't like shooting and they, they, they don't want to pay for UFC fights and they just don't care about that. And I was listening to a talk by D.A. Carson, Uncomplimentarian, and he said, listen, he's like, I, I don't mind these like Christian hunk conferences. He's like, I speak at them and I talk about my son who's a Marine and how we ride motorcycles. But he's like, listen, I don't care if you're a man, if you are for the UFC. I care if you're for your wife and whether or not you serve and fight for and provide for and protect her and your children if you have them. That's masculinity. Whether you are exploited for the good of all people. Right? I totally agree with that. And so I'm for the kind of new Christian masculinity and it also needs to get hit in the face with a piece of wood every once in a while. Which they'll probably like. <laughs> right? The third, and this might offend people, I don't know, but we're already halfway there, right? Um, is <laughs> the, de- the, the denial of the cost of bearing children. Um, this is something that I just do not think it's handled very well. And here's the problem. There's, there's this thing that one author that I'll talk about in a minute wrote about called the WAW. I can't even remember what it stands for now, but it's basically like everybody has been taught to say women are fantastic. Like no matter what question you ask people about genders or their gender or whatever, men or women, everybody says women are fantastic. Okay, listen, I don't mean to be a jerk. Women are not fantastic. Okay, they're just not. They're conniving, they're mean, they're sinners, just like everybody else. They're not better than men, they're not worse than men. They're the other gender. They're terrible, just like us men are. They have the image of God in them, just like us. They have capacities for amazing things. Many of them do them. Many of them succumb terribly to the flesh and the sinful nature, and they're awful. Okay, let's not kid ourselves about women. Terrible, just like men. Okay? And they have enormous, amazing capacities just like men. Okay? There's nothing better about women, not one ounce better about women than men. They're not fundamentally less violent and they're just better. Like, listen, violence needs to kick butt sometimes and protect people and sometimes it's terrible. And yes, there are more men in jail. But the fact that men are strong doesn't make them worse. It just means they need to be channeled just like women to use their capacities for good rather than for themselves and for evil. Okay? Now, hope that's clear. (laughs) However, respect and deference and cherishing should be shown to people who do allow themselves to be exploited for the good of all people, to be used and to give themselves for the good of others in the places, especially in the places that cost them the most. And you see, because we live in a post-1940s culture where women aren't taking their lives in their hands every time they have a child, we have completely forgot the, what childbearing means to the human race. And so we look at it as this thing that like, it's like a bowling ball tied to women's shoes in the economics race. It's what holds them back in their careers and it's the way, pe- what people expect them to do. Women are expected to have children. Isn't that outrageous? Well, look, they have uteruses. I mean, where, if I'm going to have a baby, where's the baby going to adjust it? Am I going to keep it in a box to quote Monty Python? You know what I mean? Like, what? So it's just, it's, but here's the thing. Women having children is enormously sacrificial. Enormously sacrificial. People have no—people just don't—they they, just—we just wave our hands at mothers. It's—and I just think it's patronizing. The, the, just w- what childbearing does to women's bodies, how it, how it pulls them into a place with children where their orbit tends to be smaller, and that can be really frustrating if they're an expansive kind of person, and then their, their husband is going off to do this thing, and, and they just are like, well, I kind of wish I was doing that because these guys drive me crazy. And there's just—there's all these things wrapped up into— biological effects and brokenness of the body and loss of the best hours of sleep of your life and 
illness that comes from being worn down and giving of your heart to something. The early years of nurturing where like kids can't do anything. They're so boring. And yet you're like, you're going, boo, 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 boo. And that's, listen, there, there is no more important job in the stinking world than usually mothers going, boo, 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 boo. Right? Because the more we learn about the human brain, the more we know that it, it, it expands based on the capacities we draw out of it. And so the boo 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 all that junk you do in the first couple of years that drives women insane. Right? It's, it's all so critically important. And we just wave our hands just like, yeah, you'll probably be a mother at some point. It's ridiculous. And so women are kind of like, they're running the race of life, and they know at some point somebody's going to tackle them, and that, that's childbearing. You know, they're like, I'm winning, I'm winning. You know, I'm knocked out for six or seven or 12 years because I had one to four children. And the, and the danger that women face in getting married and having children with the fickleness of men, women pay everything up front. They, they pay all the costs in the first 20 years. And guys are like marching up the career ladder and looking good and getting more education. And it should benefit her the rest of her life because they, they should live to support, nurture, and provide for each other. But what women have to do is they have to step up to the, to the line and they've got to pay all the money for the first two decades, basically in terms of what everybody's risking between the genders. They put all the money down. I'm going to have these kids. I'm going to be educationally, success-wise, income-vulnerable, and so on. And then I have no idea what you're going to do, but I'm going to trust you that after a couple decades and gray hairs and this many children and blah, 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 you're not going to leave me for, for greener pastures. Now that we live in a culture that affirms the person who cares about the marriage least, which is what no-fault divorce is all about. It affirms the person who cares the least about the marriage. Now listen, women are no better than men. But listen, the level of real, virtuous respect, affirmation, and centrality that having children should be held at in a cult— that's not to say that people don't have children— you got to quit getting offended for minorities in such a way that we can't affirm the majority of people doing the normative thing that all of us have to do if there's going to be a human race. And the fact that childbearing is so costly is the reason why in almost every Western nation, everybody that can afford birth control is not having children, and those people are disappearing from the face of the earth. It's just flat empirical proof of the cost of having children, and therefore the intrinsic beauty and importance and the reason why the husband and wife relationship to each other is so intrinsically important to create a place in where children can be born. People think this stuff just happens. Well, people have sex and then you have babies. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that because it's terrifying. And we have got to realize—I mean, I remember, I remember I was sitting in Los Angeles. It's 11.30 at night. I was by myself. I'm in a room with these three guys and this one girl who are living together in, by one of the film schools. And she's like, listen, I just—I'm not going to get married and stuff. I'm just—she's like, why, why would I get married and have children for a 50% chance that I'm going to be a single mom? She's not doing it. Now, of course, that statistics of 50% divorce isn't right. But still, you, you can understand the sentiment— that girl came from a family, a Catholic family of 11 children, and she loved her upbringing. It wasn't that she didn't like children or want to have them. It's that she didn't believe she could trust a man to stay with her after the ravages of childbearing had hit her three or four times. When there's all these available women, apparently. The feminization of the church and the feminine exclusion from ministry is kind of an interesting thing that it exists together. How is it that in our churches we found, we found a way to make it so 60% of the people that come are women, and yet women aren't in major posts of ministry in places where the Bible does not forbid them to be? The only post in the Christian church that you can make a biblical argument that is reserved for men only is the office of elder. The office of pastor isn't even really in the Bible. It's a description of what elders do. Elder is shepherd. Okay? That office, and that's a whole other sermon, 
I would argue, is reserved for men. That's it. Let me just ask a question. I'm not saying we have to change it. This, I think this is worth thinking about. At High Point Church, we have a youth pastor, right, and a children's director, right? Which, of course, means that the children's director doesn't shepherd anybody. She just, she just does administration all the time, and the youth pastor only shepherds people and doesn't do administration, right? <laughs> no. Right? They both do their own administration. They're both responsible for the spiritual shepherding of the people they're over, and we believe that they're both over groups of youth, that is, children, right? Why do we do that? Derek's not an elder, where you could try to legitimate that, right? But we do it. We don't even think about it. Why? I'll get to what to do with that in the next slide, but— um, and I've said all I want to say, I think, about the disintegration and dissatisfaction with procreative marriage. Uh, yeah, I can't do that right now. Yeah. Okay, just look at this. So, so that's what you get when you type in Google, right? Type in a Google college student. Do you notice anything about that picture? Do you notice that there's 39 women and 18 men? That's what, the, that's what a college student is now, a woman. Now, listen, I'm very much in favor of empowering women. I, there's probably ways we can empower women more. But if you look at the social science statistics the way they actually lay out, as far as I can tell, the gender that we should be terrified about where they are going over the next 25 years is men. You hear sometimes about how there are still areas of education in which women are not well represented, like, like physics. It's not a lot of women in physics. Mathematics. Not a lot of women in mathematics, right? But something like 67% of biology master's degrees are awarded to women, but you never hear about that, do you? Like, well, where are all the men in biology? Wait, women just seem to like it. They just seem to choose it. There's a math class at Harvard that is touted as the most difficult math class in the world for undergraduates. Definitely in the country, they say, right? 20 to 25 students usually. There's almost never a woman in the class. It's almost always men, almost a third Asian usually. It's just the way, and you're like, well, that's just discrimination. Yeah, well, it's Harvard. So, um, you, th you think that's what the thing is? Well, it's, well, it's, it's, it's in school. Well, maybe. But there's another possible explanation. One of the things that one very conservative feminist author said is they said, when we study extremely intelligent men and women, here's what we normally find. We find that extremely intelligent men are usually very focused on a particular thing. Like, they're really, really awesome at math. They get a 1600 on math on their SATs, and they get like a— well, you can't do that. Obviously, you get the 800 or whatever the high score is. And they get—they just don't do well on English. Like my brother, for example. He's—he's he's two years older than me. He's in the National Engineering Hall of Fame, and he can't spell the— I mean that literally. Like, he misspelled it in high school, and my mom got called in. Okay? It's just—it's brilliant. And she said, what we find with extremely intelligent women is, is that generally speaking, they're cross-competent, right? And who wants to do math? Right? And so they just—that woman who has 184 IQ, who could have been in the hardest math, she just picks biology because she likes biology. Right? It doesn't—not necessarily sexism, though it might be, but what we actually see in the raw data all the way across the board for all college degrees awarded to anyone is women have now far surpassed men. Now you might say, well, good for women. What well, is good for women? It's also terrible for women. Do you think women like going to colleges that have two girls for every guy? Do they enjoy that? Oh, look, there's six of us for every guy. Let's see if we can find a date. Like, I'm— Women go to college to get their BAs and BSs, make no mistake, but many of them would like to get their MRS along the way. They don't particularly like it at college or at church or anywhere else. Most of us would like both genders to thrive, and the empirical data is telling us they are not. Now, feminists will look up the ladder and say, look, there's still dudes at the top. It's mostly guys up there. Yes, the problem is we all tend to look up, but if you look down as who is most in prison, who is most homeless, who most dies doing their job, and so on, it's all men. Men are at the top in higher percentages, and they're at the bottom in higher percentages. Partly because men are less risk-averse. If you have a job that could likely kill you, 
and you have a man and a woman making the same amount, and you're going to increase the salary until one of them says yes, statistically, the guy just says yes first. In our last war, there were 3,900 and something male casualties and two female casualties. As the church, we have to figure out how to empower a real masculinity without disturbing the empowerment of femininity. We have to figure out how to do that. All right, I need to get this last slide. So, oh, I'm reading this book. It's great. Bellmeister isn't a Christian, but he's a very careful social scientist, and it's very helpful. And if you send me an email, we'll have a book club on it because I'm reading it, so might as well. Okay. So let's go to the last one. It's putting it into practice. So let's say you're here and you're like, okay, Nick, look, I'm a Christian. I believe in the Bible and the scriptures. I believe that Jesus submitted to his Father. I believe we're all in submission relationships and in leadership relationships. I think that's what the text says. So, so now what? How do we do this so that it produces harmony and love rather than fights, angriness, subjugation, oppression, people hating each other, and so forth? And so these are some of the things I think are helpful. One is, you've got to have some kind of idea about gender identity. You have to believe something, and it should be helpful. And I believe when you study the Bible carefully, it would not be some kind of extreme hierarchical traditionalism, and I don't think it's a full egalitarianism that doesn't respect real differences between men and women that are very significant. I, I, I'm, I believe in a view that generally gets called complementarianism, which is the belief that the genders are equal in value and complementary in their roles and function. And you have to, one of the most important things to work out is how do we complement each other? That's difficult, though, because that means you have to affirm, give space for, and love things that don't make any sense to you. Because here's the thing, if you're a man and you embrace your wife as different, she's going to do things that drive you nuts. And it's actually going to come out of her feminine distinctiveness, and you're going to be thinking, oh, I wish she wouldn't do it that way. And you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to be like, look, she sees something valuable in that that somehow, from my perspective, I can't really see. So either we need to talk, and I need to, what, or we need to. Second thing is to challenge same-gender accountability. Generally speaking, husbands and wives holding each other accountable on the role relationships within a marriage is not particularly helpful. Better to have a man saying to the man of the relationship, so loving your wife and not being harsh with her, how's that going? Is it fun for her to submit to you? When she submits to you, does she know it's for her good? Does she know that you're allowing yourself to be exploited for the good of the family that she's a part of? Or does she feel like you're the free rider on her work? That, she, that you're her— you know, that, that she's your free lunch. How's that going? And you need a guy that can, like, kick you and preferably at least a generation or two older than you who loves you but isn't going to take your baloney. If you're not married, then you need to choose a husband or a wife carefully. And notice, choose and carefully are the words emphasized. There are some godly reasons to be single, especially if you're 11. There are. There are a lot of people who are single and don't want to be and are actively hoping someone will come along that they could be married to. There are other people who, for some reason or another, really feel like they need to be single at a particular point in time. They're, they, they're a, you know, a well-established loser magnet, and they need to pull back and figure out what's going on. Or they, for whatever reason, um, there are some godly reasons to be single. That's not why most people over 22 are single. Normative Christian human life is to provide yourself as a husband or a wife for another person so that you could build a human family and pass on life to a new generation. Because God said it wasn't good for a man or woman to be alone. He desired godly offspring, and he wished for humanity to continue and for the gospel to go forth through it. That's normative. And most of us just, we don't want to be exploited. We, we're terrified. We've Divorces, you know, there's too many divorces for us to feel comfortable. Blah, blah, blah. I can't find a suitable person. They're not godly and hot enough or something. And it just, it's this, it's not, 
And, and it's, it's partly because we live in a consumeristic society and we're constantly upgrading. And the minute you lock in your stock price, you're screwed. Because what it, I mean, I just, you see this with guys and girls, especially guys. It's kind of like, yeah, she's a wonderful Christian girl, but, you know, he keeps looking over his shoulder, shoulder for a hotter one to come along. And, and listen, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Godliness and gentleness and kindness and humility are of much higher worth than hotness in men or women. And when we fall into what the world thinks about general attractiveness and relationships and so on, of course it's going to screw up our view of marriage. We can have a different theological view of marriage or of getting married or of having children, but if we buy into all the other assumptions, we're naturally going to come to the same conclusions. There's a lot of us for whom our singleness is actually sinful. We were meant to be provided to another person as a husband and a wife for their comfort, upbuilding, provision, and protection. And we are depriving them of the comfort and love and companionship of a husband or a wife. Now, if you're single, that doesn't mean it's—that's just true of you. But it might be. And I suspect it would be a relative majority in the over-22 class. I'm just— being provocative to make you think. But I think I'm right. The next thing is to delegate authority into domains. Nobody likes to be micromanaged. Authority and submission should not function that way. Lex and I use the word domains, but you might think that's pejorative. There are certain areas where Lexi's really good. Her authority in that area is better than mine. And it is, that is her domain, and I don't mess with it. We've agreed on certain parameters in relationship to it. She does it, and whenever I enter that domain, we actually switch roles on the basis of my authority, and then now hers. So sometimes there are family things that need to get done, but that family thing is in Alexi's domain, and we agree it's time to do that thing, and so I show up and I say, okay, tell me what to do. And then I become the model submitter. I do it, What's next? I do it. I do it. I do it her way. I do it within her parameters because that's her domain, and we get more done. We're more cooperative. We both flourish more. We're more effective. Our children do better when we act that way. Just because you are functionally in authority doesn't mean there are times where the other person's expertise or functionality or attentiveness or this is where they, you know, they're here 60 hours a week and you're there two hours a week and they know what's going on. Shut your mouth and submit to her and show her what you wish she would do. Leadership makes everything easy and sometimes the roles need to switch for good reasons. Um, Learn how to lead and submit. You've got to know how to do both. You need to know when to lead and when to submit. Listen, the reason why things don't get done in this world, people say it's for lack of leadership. They say it's for lack of—it's not. The reason things don't get done in this world is not for lack of leadership. It's for lack of perfect leadership that can get people who have no commitment to following to do something that's never going to happen. There's going to be a bunch of crappy leaders like me saying, hey, let's do something really worthwhile. And a bunch of other people going, yeah, maybe we could do that's, that's what the world is like. In order to accomplish all the things we dream of in our family, culture, society, whatever, here's what has to happen. Millions of people have to learn how to become followers again. Committed to a goal, knowing that if they play their role and they play their role, we all play our role, we can accomplish something together. Listen, I'm trying to become better as a leader every day. There's probably something you lead that you're trying to become better as a leader. But listen, the reason why High Point Church isn't a greater church, why our families aren't greater families, why blah, 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 is usually not because the leadership is so bad. It's usually because the following is so bad. It's just a fact. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. The discipline and the dignity and the task of following has a nobility and a beauty to it that is almost entirely lost on us. It's a huge theme in Lord of the Rings and lots of other great literature. But we have totally lost it. And if you don't capture that, I think wives need that. You need that. In some ways, there's something more noble to the person in the second position. Because they're shielding the leader, they're taking orders, they're doing this, they're going there, they're trying to see things before they get there, they're advising, they're— I mean, I was a second-tier leader in a church for seven years. It was tough work. But I believed in its nobility. 
and its importance. And I did it as a second-tier leader. I didn't try to usurp authority the best I could. Check in how things are going. You should ask your wife, if you're a husband, regularly. And you sh- if you're a wife, you should say, hey, can we check in about this? And say, how's it going? Is it fun? Is this dynamic fun? Is it good for you? Do you feel like submitting to me is making it easier for you to submit to Christ? Or is it harder because of me? Are there times where you wish I would take authority that I don't? Because listen, ladies, we live in a world in which men have not been affirmed in how to be masculine, especially in this area. And on some level, they, they probably need you to be like, be like, listen, I want you to take control of that. One, especially parenting in our house, because most guys have gotten the impression that most mothers believe that it's their role to protect their children from their father. Right? When I was growing up, my mom said the famous sentence, right? You can say it with me if you want. Wait until your father gets home. Meaning, your father's going to get home. I'm going to tell him what you did, and then I'm not going to protect you from him. <laughs> and that was terrifying. Now it's, now what the kid knows is, when my dad gets home, you won't tell him, and if he finds out, you'll protect me from him. Sometimes it's really good for one or the other spouse to be like, go for it. Discipline it. Get him. (laughs) Both husbands and wives. Because there's this this thing in the air that children are so fragile that if you discipline them, they're going to need counseling their whole lives and they'll probably die or something. And it's, it's totally false, but people think it. And so when your kid needs discipline, you're both kind of frozen like, oh, I don't want to damage him. You know, and it's just, you, you don't know what to do. And you th- look at your wife and you know that if you do what you want to do, she's going to hate it. And you know, if she does what she wants to do, you're going to hate it because you're a man and a woman. She's going to be too soft. You're going to be too hard. But somebody has to do something and somebody has to affirm it. Or what you get is nothing. And nothing isn't good. Because then your kids don't do nothing. They do more. Book permissions. And then study the Bible on order, authority, submission, and leadership, especially in Jesus. There is nobody who exerted better leadership and demanded the place of his authority better than Jesus. And there is no one in the Bible more submissive than Jesus. Read John's Gospel. Everywhere. Everywhere. It's, I came to do the Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. I'm here to do the will. I speak the words the Father gave me and nothing more on the basis of his authority that he's given me to bring to you. I mean, there's no one more submissive than Jesus. If there's anything else besides the cross, I could, any other way, God lets you, but not my will, yours be done in relationship to my own execution, he says. And if you, if you attend to this in the Bible, as you read and study the Bible, it will begin to cure some of our misunderstandings and problems and issues with how we understand what we are as men and women. It will. And the result of that, there'll be three results of it. One is, is that we will flourish much more as men and women than we tend to. The second is, you know who the biggest loser is when the genders are adversarial to each other? Who's the biggest loser? Children. It's hell on our kids. They will benefit enormously when they see their mom and their dad figuring out how to be complementary rather than adversarial. And third, it will do what the Bible says it's meant to do, and that is to beautify the gospel and lead people who don't believe it to believe it, and to demonstrate to the whole world what the relationship between Christ and his church looks like. And when that happens, not only will our families be stronger and our children be stronger, we'll be happier and all of this, but the gospel will have a power it doesn't have because of the beauty. People will look at us and they'll think we're a little crazy and they'll treat us like we're like raving feminists or stupid traditionalists, but they'll look at how— this will happen. You'll be in a coffee shop. One woman will be saying to this— high point woman. I can't believe you believe that. I can't. And then about halfway through the two-hour conversation, she'll realize the woman across the table from her is so much happier than she is. And she's thriving. And she's empowered. And she's strong. And she's godly. And her marriage is going well. And her kids are thriving. and, And she'll say, I know she's wrong, but there's something wrong with how she's wrong. It'll happen with men, too. I've seen it happen. In my own kitchen. 
Let's pray. Father, um, I've probably said a lot wrong. Hopefully I've said a few things right. I pray that as people go, that they would be impressed by the things I said that are in line with your word and your will. I pray that we would mainly focus ourselves on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who himself was the great authoritative one and the great submissive one, that he led and submitted and followed in the most beautiful ways and help us to be a people who subject ourselves to all the proper authorities in our lives and lead beautifully and well and who model what it means to be a man and a woman in marriage, even in singleness. Help us to figure out what that means, to see what it means, to understand what it means. And Father, I, I believe that we are all really confused about what it means to be a man and a woman. We live in a moment where we need your leadership. Please help us. Please help us to know it, see it, believe it, and then ultimately feel it and be able to act it out in a way that causes both genders, children, and the gospel to thrive among all people. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.